0: I'm Kate Lavelle,
1: And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group.
0: We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. Despite more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's become harder than ever to make sense of the world around us and form smart, long-term decisions. So we're on a mission to combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom, to connect the dots and answer the so what, empower you to do the same
1: kicking off our first episode we thought we'd take a little time to introduce ourselves and talk about what canary group is about and why we're making this podcast my name is Michael Vieira I have 17 years experience in intelligence in the private sector government and in the military I also have had a background in language and culture
0: I'm Kate Lavelle. I have over 20 years experience working with Fortune 100 brands to proactively identify and prepare for reputational risks and navigate crises.
1: We started the Canary Group um, as a roundtable of professionals with expertise in communications, strategy, analytics, intelligence, and deep subject matter expertise to better understand the world around us for the purpose of thoughtful decision making.
0: Truth is fleeting, it's becoming more and more subjective, instead we commit to honesty, that means that our opinions will change as information and intelligence evolves. We hope you'll join us in a conversation to better understand the invisible threads connecting everything. So where should we start?
1: Oh, well, I know that Russia and Ukraine have certainly been on people's minds, uh, and especially in the past week with the attempted coup, or as I'm calling it, the shortest coup in history uh, that we've seen recently with, with Wagner Group. But, <laughs> um, but overall, I think that some people, I think, have read into this and saw that perhaps this had a chance of overthrowing the Putin regime. And I don't really think it really did. But mm-hmm. it is is—it is signs, I think, of endemic collapse of the Russian system eventually.
0: So there is trouble in Russia. I think everybody yeah.
1: kind of suspected there was. But as we're looking over time, if you look over time, I mean, you're just going to see this as sort of like a, a slow-moving train wreck of as Russia is starting to basically disintegrate. Uh, but it's going to be more from the edges of... As the center, as the power center of St. Petersburg and Moscow, are unable to really address the issues that are going on in the furthest oblasts, especially in Siberia and the in the Pacific, uh, you know, the Far East, you're going to start seeing other powers kind of having to push, push into those areas to kind of uh, in the vacuum, the power vacuum. And you're going to see the governors of those oblasts most likely going to be the ones having to reach out to people to be able to get, uh, keep the lights on, keep food moving and transportation. Um, And it's just every year, I think you're just going to see more and more of that happening. Plus, you also have the demographic collapse of Russia that's going on right now, too. So it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when, just not today. Uh, That's the big thing.
0: Okay, I'll plan accordingly. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about the role of demographics and why that's so important?
1: Uh, Absolutely uh, because demographics are are destiny along with geography. I think those are two things that people don't really look at a lot when they're looking at geopolitical uh, Issues or problems. Uh, We tend to look at things I think more economically or militarily, but uh, geography has a lot to do with how a country um, Why countries act the way they do usually if you're in a position of strength uh, Versus being in a position of weakness and is in a position of weakness uh, geography wise Um, and demographically uh, countries that are demographically starting to decline, it's harder to make new people. Uh, that's the one thing. You can print more money, and you can do other things, and you can maybe you can build up your defense. Uh, but in the case of people, it takes people a long time. And with Russia, since the fall of the Soviet Union, ninety, ninety-one, uh, you've been seeing just this just this complete gradual decline. And people tend not to want to have kids when things are really tough. Sure. mother's surviving uh and plus also you're seeing in russia there's also having problems i think with their the uh the education system and the training system um a lot of the russian they have the brain drain a lot of the best and the brightest russians have left <laughs> and the war hasn't helped i've heard up to like a million young russian men have basically left and those are the oh, ones wow. who probably more outward looking and the ones who may be just a little bit more cosmopolitan maybe a little bit better educated um, it's not going to be some kid from, you know, like way out in the eastern ob- oblast that's being pulled into the war. You know, these are the kids who are going to be, who have the means and the the gumption to get up and go. Um, and you're losing that.
0: Who could be the game changers. Yeah. Yeah. It's not helping. I think education is a huge component here. As far as priorities go in Russia, it seems like there's some lasting consequences for how they prioritized education.
1: Yeah. Well, education was Unfortunately, I think they had like the rule of three or the rule of five, you know, you can have uh, you can have two of three You can have four or five, but you can't have all of them and they made their decisions that extractives uh, Nuclear weapons the military, you know, those are the things Those are the things that, that had the immediate dividends the power dividends and the money dividends uh, But education sort of lost out in training and I've heard some people say that the last uh, The last cohort of fully trained Russians was somewhere probably around the late 80s so you have a lot of people who haven't necessarily had um, you know a, a full you know soup to nuts educational system that's basically backed them up with training and everyone else. There are smart Russians, but though they are becoming more and more a minority. Uh, so what do you do with the rest of them? And the big part here too is that who is going to be running things right after this cabal, the clique that's currently in power, and they're out of power? Who are you going to have who's going to right. run things? Right, the technocrats. Because Russia, I've heard it described that Russia has, you know, the, the power base is based on four. So you have the military, of the army, you have what they call the men of action, who are like the guys in the security services, and then you've got the technocrats and then you've got the oligarchs, and then the oligarchs are broken on the inner and the outer oligarchs. The people who were already stripping the bones of the Soviet Union, you know, the old oligarchs and then the, the newer oligarchs are the ones who just hung on the coattails of Putin and got their money and wealth because of loyalty. And then you've got you know Wagner Groupa, which is outside of all of that. You know, they're just he's just basically a, a side project by Putin that kind of got out of hand. Um, and and Prigozhin was just someone described Prigozhin as a uh, as a project manager who started reading his own press releases, and I thought that was hilarious. So it's, uh, <laughs> but it's at the end of the day, though, it's like you have you know this power system, and it's it's now shifting. And may, for a while, it was sort of in the in the camp of, of, of Shoigu in the military because the. I think ultimately, I mean, Putin is an intelligence person. Some people say he's an intelligence officer. Yeah, I guess so. He's a fourth director at KGB guy. um, And that's an interesting story in and of itself. But he's brought, you know, people like him into it. And uh, he knows he needs people who are kind of like thugs. And that's what Pergozian was. Pergozian was a thug. He was a thug before he was a caterer. And then he was a, then he's a thug after he was a caterer. And now he's hiding out in Belarus. But, um, But what we're seeing right now, though, is just this demographic collapse we're seeing. And and it's just going to start building upon itself. And the Russians are not going to be able to hold what they have currently right now. So the Russian empire will eventually degrade. Um, Sanctions are not going to help. And the Russians don't. And because they don't actually have this large scale education uh, system to basically, if you're training and education, they were relying upon the West to do a lot of their heavy lift as far as, um, you know, oil extraction and other things. Uh, now they don't have that. And that's that's a big deal. Uh, and by the way, once the oil gets shut off, you know, from sanctions, um, it's really hard to restart that stuff too. So it's just going to be this snowball effect. And you're going to start seeing more things like this. And I think this is also, I think Prigozhin and Wagner Grupa's um, small-scale rebellion may embolden other people because it's made Putin look somewhat weak. Uh, because he's had, he's dally mm-hmm. dally too long and trying to balance Purgosian and Shoigu. And now he's, he's in this situation where it doesn't really look really good on him. And plus he's, he's 70, right? So, you know, despite wrestling with Siberian tigers and walking around shirtless, I mean, eventually, you know, time does catch up to him and I'm sure, you know, who's after Putin? You certainly didn't want Prigozhin being being right. boss. Uh, he's a terrible, terrible man. So, and there's really nobody in his inner circle that I would really want to be <laughs> re- leading Russia. Uh, but maybe Russia doesn't have to worry about that. Maybe China will be their new you know, their new overlord.
0: There's a bit of a power vacuum. Um, who is going to fill that hole that Russia was really putting up a very good front of appearing to be able to hold? Who steps in? Who's going to be the game changer that sort of takes the next chapter? Yes,
1: Russia's near abroad. Um, All the former Soviet republics and the countries that Russia has always considered to be in their sphere of influence, especially down in the south, in the Caucasus, um, and also in the the Asian area, um, that's up for grabs. And one of the things that we're seeing is with Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, Russians had come in on the side, I think, of the Armenians because they were Christian, and the Azerbaijanis Uh, had certain disadvantages, but recently we've seen uh, the Azerbaijanis finding ways, actually working through the Turks to use, I mean, Turkish drones, and they've been very effective in neutralizing a lot of the advantages that the Armenians had. And now that the Russians are distracted, the Armenians don't have that on their side. If you remember just before, about a year ago, just before the Ukrainian invasion um, in Kazakhstan, uh, there was a a bunch of anti-government riots and the Russians had to send a couple of paratroop battalions down there to, to kind of straighten things out. If the same thing were to break out today, would the Russians be able to do that? Most likely not. And every month, it becomes less and mm-hmm. less likely that Russia would be able to do that. So the question is, who goes in and restores order in Kazakhstan? And I'm going to put forward, it's either going to be you know, the, the Turks, or as we're calling them, Ottoman too, uh, or uh, you've, got the, uh, you've got the Chinese. And, it, and my guess, I'm going to think mm-hmm. probably China has a better guess, but China has been kind of filling in in the stands. You know, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. uh, Turkmenistan, and just going in there in this area and um, spreading money and doing what they do best, corrupting elites. And uh, (laughs) it's not like the Chinese want to go in there. They don't want to rule people, but they certainly want influence and they certainly want resources. Um, But they also are not going to tolerate a vacuum on their doorstep because their western provinces of China are the ones that are probably the most unstable in China and the ones where the Chinese are most concerned Mm -hmm. about. And they certainly don't want instability on their Western border spilling into those provinces and igniting something going on.
0: I do think that that's the issue of resources. So first you've got demographics, and I think you know it's safe to say Russia is not in a great place, demographically speaking. We can talk more about China and where China sits with demographics as well. But from a purely resource perspective, Focus perspective. There is so much need right now and so much wrangling for that kind of control and that power and the perception of power that you've got. You know, I think a big reason Russia is even involved in Ukraine and has been so hyper focused on Ukraine for so long is the resources that Ukraine has to offer. Same thing with China as far as wanting to make sure that not only are they not losing ground on their boundaries, but there's major resources at play, right?
1: Well, it ties with Russia, it ties into their demographics because the Russians know that in about a decade, they're not going to have enough young Russian men to be able to defend the territory they currently have right now um and the russians have traditionally always their form of defense has always been by pushing their boundaries as far as possible so that's the reason why they're in the pacific you know if you look at russia it was constantly pushing across mm-hmm. this and that's the tyranny we you're going to use the word tyranny a lot here we use the tyranny of common uh yeah. but, but here we're using tyranny <laughs> of, of geographic of geography the russians are in areas that are easily uh invadable so they have to push to be able to plug up some people have called them gaps but uh, they have to be able to push to the south, to the west, and to the east to, to make it so it's very difficult uh, for an enemy to be able to invade. And as a strange it seems to us right now in the 21st century to think about that, I mean, the Russians for a thousand years have always had to worry about invaders, Mongols, and everybody else. Um, so it's very real to them and that fear. Uh, Pushing into Ukraine, I think, was more for national defense because with less people, you need to have a more defensible area to keep people from driving. Make it less to limit the temptation for people to think, you know, why don't we just drive on Moscow? Um, Mm -hmm. But it also has the dual effect, I think, of putting pressure on the West and other countries that you know the Russians can say, well, you know, you're not going to get this food, you're not going to get this energy unless you play ball with us but it's kind of boomeranged on them in a certain way. I think their estimation, not wrongly, I think that we, we misunderstood the Russians and the Russians misunderstood us. We're misunderstanding the Chinese, the Chinese are misunderstanding us. That's just, the, that's just the mistake of history. But demographically, the Russians, I think, understand at a certain level that they won't be able to play ball uh, in the next, you know, the next decade, um, unless the ground rules change a great deal. Um, and so we're, you know, we're here right now. And the Chinese, I think, also realize that, too. They're starting to feel that pressure. But for the Chinese, it's also, though, how do you support an ap- a rapidly aging population with a, with a much smaller underpinning? And I think they were looking more at what the Japanese achieved, you know, getting rich before you get old. Well, China probably going to get old before it gets rich. Um, and in that case, though, that that mm-hmm. puts pressure on China to try to find a way to secure resources because the energy, I think, the energy is like eighty percent imports, and that's coming probably from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and food, I think, they have to underpin forty to sixty percent, depending on what you read. Um, you know, and plus, I mean, they can produce a certain amount of fertilizer. China is really good at phosphates, but. I think one of the things that we, you and I were talking about earlier, and I've, I've, I've coined the term uh, "frozen Costco" to talk about, you know, Siberia. Why go all the way around the world with, you know, all these where you can be blockaded in times of war, when you have this giant, untapped resource to your north called Siberia, and I think the Chinese are are eyeing that, Um, and China has attempted to use Russia in the past for. To get around Western sanctions, which they fear, because they've seen what Western sanctions now have done to Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about eight, ten years ago, they tried to buy the third largest food combine in Russia, and the Russians told them to pound sand. Um, but they now, if China came back and tried to buy that, maybe Russia would not be able to resist yeah. uh, that. And by losing that national sovereignty, Russia is also subverting itself as a junior partner in this in this Chinese-Russian relationship.
0: I think that's really interesting. Sort of as we transition to talking about China, is before Russia was this Goliath that was so powerful, and now within that relationship with China, we're seeing that there really is a different power structure at play. Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, I think uh, I, I would use the if you looked at pre-World War One Europe and you looked at uh, Wilhelmine Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Austrian-Hungarians, I mean, for the longest time had a very long, long history and had managed to be the dominant major empire, you know, since the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Germany only really got its act together thanks to Napoleon. You know, it had been a disparate bunch of principalities and little, you know, fiefdoms that all came together post-Napoleon because Napoleon hated disorder. So he forced the conglomeration of all these German states and made them larger. And now you have a Germany. But, you know, going into the First World War, I think a lot of people still, you know, had the, the hangover of history and looking at the Austro-Hungarians and thought, well, there's still an empire. There's still uh, someone to be played, uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with. But the reality was is that it was crumbling. It was, it was made up of, of too many separate nationalities. That there was no really common identity. It was, you know, the, the Hungarian, the dual monarchy, um, and the Germans became, the Germans were more efficient and, uh, and in the end turned out to be the, the, the dominant partner that overran and, 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 basically ran roughshod over the, the Austrian Hungarians. And that's what's going on with the Chinese and with the Russians right now. So Russia, I think still holds on to a sense of its imperial destiny. It's, it is an empire. There are empires. Russia and China are both empires, no matter what they want to call themselves. I mean, um. Mm-hmm. But I would say the war in Ukraine for Russia is what like the war against Japan in 1904, 1905 was like um, and the arguments that are being made. And I'm, I, I also buy that, too. It's like it's, it's sort of like Russia's war to lose. It has the man it, on paper has more people. It has more material. It has more equipment. But it doesn't mean that a smaller power can't fight it to a standstill. And maybe historically that's what this will happen here the tsar's court was very corrupt <laughs> it had great distances and it had well yeah. so now we have
0: check so, check so now you have
1: putin and his oligarchs they really i hate to say that history repeats itself but it rhymes right so um, in yeah. this case we're looking at similar things corruption is corruption in russia is what has always been a major problem uh, even through the communist system so what you're seeing right now mm-hmm. is they're squandering all their advantages, and meanwhile, I mean, my gosh, uh, the Ukrainians are going to get 16s in 2024. It's like that's going to change things, and everybody's, everyone's digging mm-hmm. in their pockets and pulling out like you know, like this spare change and, and you know, and weapon systems that they can, that are coming to the end of their useful lifestyle and just giving to the Ukrainians. That's pushing it. The Ukrainians are getting American intelligence, and they're also getting Western staff uh, support this isn't Ukraine doing mm-hmm. all of this. No, this is no this, this is not disparaging Ukraine at all, but Ukraine is getting,
0: but there's a level of sophistication that, yeah, that yeah. You,
1: you know, you're, you're looking at and saying, boy, these guys are good. you're like, they're good, but they've got some people in their, you know, <laughs> but They've got some people in their corner. Right. You
0: know? Reminds me of someone. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who knows how to
1: do this kind of stuff and really good at logistics and has really great intelligence and has been training to fight a large scale Russian invade. Oh my gosh. It sounds like us um plus the fact that the ukrainians are getting all this intelligence you're getting everything is just going to the ukrainians um that's a big disadvantage and nobody really talks about that or at least if people are talking about it i'm not hearing them but um and so that Mm -hmm. may give the fact that we could be going into year two year three of a ukraine war ukraine russian war um so you know prepared to be prepared to be astounded folks and see what happens here um but if something happens, if there's a challenge to Putin or continuing challenges or you know, a continued erosion of things or what I suspect you'll start seeing is that it'll be harder and harder to uh, keep the, the the further you are from Moscow and St. Petersburg, the harder it will be to basically just do the day to day things right. Um, and then they're going to start looking to other people. And that'll be China, Japan, uh, the Turks, depending on where you're at. Uh, To help you uh, with those things And the near abroad You know the country The nominal countries Around the Russian periphery Are also going to be Looking for friends Because Russia's not there anymore to, To help them And internally also The sanctions are taking their toll On technology And also just on the The wear and tear Um Gosh, we could just go on and on and on about all these things, but I mean, Russian—the uh, bearings that are used on Ru- Russia depends upon pipelines and trains. That's how Russia moves things. It doesn't really have a big, a big road network. Um, it doesn't supply—you know—it's it, aviation doesn't move things like we move it here in the West. Um, and therefore, you know, if you don't have the bearings that they're using on Russian uh, trains, we're switched to a more efficient Western style bearing that isn't really produced in Russia. You know, it's produced by a Western company. I think a French company makes them. Uh, and that French company is now gone. And so, you know, whatever's left in the system is what the Russians have. Uh, and unless the Westerners come back, Western techno- uh, technology and uh, Western tech know how, uh, expertise, and money. Oof, it's not going to be replaced by China. Yeah. Uh, So.
0: And it certainly sounds like, without a clear plan B, it's not like you've got, you know, organized political parties in Russia who could potentially step in to provide structure if Putin weren't there. Um, It's looking more and more like a failed state. Um, I think that is. That is so different than a lot of the potential outcomes that I've personally imagined, but I'm guessing other folks as well, which, again, makes makes a lot of space for the Turks, for the Chinese to be able to step in. So, you know, one thing I think with China that we have been hyper-focused on has been Taiwan. You know, we've been really, really interested. There's been a lot of research done on... Um, China's uh, naval vessels, uh, they've been building tons of ships, they've been really, really active as far as sort of getting people's attention on their interest in Taiwan, but that may not necessarily be quite as pivotal um, or imminent, as we've thought.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's a good segue to go into China a little bit. You know, We've kind of been skirting around China a little bit here. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the Chinese naval buildup has been impressive, uh, especially when compared. I think there's concerns when looking at like the United States Navy. The United States Navy has made a lot of blunders over the past uh, decade or so uh, with the, the LCS program. <laughs> um uh, just to prove be told, I do have a I do have a dog in this fight. I was a, a former naval officer, so a naval intelligence officer. So, uh, but I, I was part of the faction that called the LCS. But the LCS, little crappy ship, we used to call it. If you were on that side of the of the coin, other people thought it was transformational. But uh, the transformationalism of the United States Navy was a mistake, and it's put us at sort of a disadvantage. And the Chinese are building a new navy, and they're putting a lot of surface units on the block. But unfortunately for the Chinese.
0: They're all smaller boats, though, right? They're they're basically to harass Taiwan. It's not like they're necessarily competing with the U.S. Well, the, around the right, globe, right? They're building
1: fleet. It's are funny they? because they built a lot of stuff that copied the Soviet system, and now you're seeing a lot of their shipping, which is now starting to copy American and French designs and a number of other things because they're seeing the effectiveness mm-hmm. of like what they're seeing Western platforms as being more effective. That's interesting in itself. There's always like a history there. Uh, but the thing is is that you're right. I mean, a lot of these fleet units probably can't operate because what you need is a fleet train. You need a logistics train to be able to back that up and you need the experience and you need bases and you need to be have you have to train to operate over the horizon. So pretty much China is sort of limited to a kind of like I guess a circle of action that may only be maybe a thousand or twelve hundred miles off their coast effectively, even though those ships could mm-hmm. operate theoretically, you know, much further. Um but the idea is to control the South China Seas and try to wrest controls of the Strait of Malacca. Maybe also to you know to challenge and push the United States as far back as they can, maybe past the Philippines. Um, you know, and the idea is that if they can put up a, a credible force that could you know, that could push off the United States, then that's what the Chinese are trying to do. And looking at the the archipelagos that they've been building in the building in the South China Sea. Yes, they are occupying that and put planting the Chinese flag. But as we learned in the Second World War, is that you know island bases, you know, for the Japanese were you know, not necessarily ineffective. The Chinese thought, the Japanese thought that you know, we build a chain of defenses and this will defend the home islands. But it was a lot harder and it didn't really work out. Uh, you have to have a much more sophisticated kind of system. And once you're you're tied down somewhere, um, you know, it makes it a lot. You you can't move it. It's there. You know it's going to happen. So you know, um, right. Yeah, and there's various, you know, there's various traditional ideas of, you know, about uh, fixed defenses versus, you know, mobile defenses. But for China to go into Taiwan, it needs, I think, well, I mean, for an, o- an offense, they always say like three to one, you know, on land with a, with a, um, gosh, with this, I think it's six to one, maybe. Please forgive me, anybody out there who's an amphibious expert, you know, but, but you do need a much higher <laughs> for success to be able to go in. And the Chinese, it's roughly about a hundred miles across the Straits of Taiwan, Uh, To go in and and, and the thing is, all of the development is on the Chinese facing side, right? So Taiwan, everything that's kind of like on the East Coast that faces out into the ocean is kind of like mountainous. And there isn't really a lot of um, that's not where the invasion would come from. The invasion most likely would come on the East Coast facing in with China. Uh, But the Chinese would have to bring a lot of material. They'd have to have a lot of specialized training, have a lot of people in logistics. And that stuff would be, despite their best efforts, you would be able to see a lot of these things. Um, and really, nobody can really hide, you know, to, to to a certain effect, especially these days, you can't really hide a lot of that. You'd have to mass shipping, you'd have to have troop movements, you'd have to have pre-invasion drills, you'd have to have training, um, you'd have to stockpile things. I think what China really wants to do is just have a change of regime. They, what they're going to do is they're trying to support uh, political parties in Taiwan that are going to be more you know Beijing friendly and the idea is just subvert them subvert them and have them vote themselves you know, vote China in into uh, into office and and that's what they what they ultimately want mm-hmm. like to do but if Taiwan continues to go along the route here and this is my my theory is is that the United States and the Europeans discovered that Taiwan could be what North Korea is to China and North Korea has been, an effective pain point for the West. The Chinese support North Korea because they can use them. Whenever they're displeased with the West, they can just stir up trouble and have you know whoever the dictator of choice is in time, there to, to make trouble and to make everybody uncomfortable. The United States suddenly realized at some point that hey, we've got Taiwan, why don't we use this? And I think Taiwan in some ways, it's a different sort of pain But I think it's in some ways it's a more effective pain and the Chinese are not used to that And that's why you see the Chinese reacting the way that they are and they go absolutely, you know ballistic because you know when you start Hitting them in these planes. It's like reminding like it's like reminding somebody of like something that they don't want to be reminded of Right, you know your your friend had recently had a divorce or something and you're like, oh hey, what happened about this China? And you're like, oh my gosh, so And if you're finding you still see North Korea Bubbling up, but we're getting tired of North Korea. You know, we're seeing that yes, yes, you've got nukes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, you've got rockets. It doesn't mean that it's not a danger, but it's sort of like a thing where we, at least, we know what those dangers are, uh, and we're prepared for them. And unfortunately, also that's also motivated the Japanese and the South Koreans to sort of mend their fences, and now they're becoming best buddies, or at least better buddies. Um, and it's just Russia. With with the expansion of NATO, that was basically one of their things, saying, you know, we're go, we're going to Ukraine because we can't stand the expansion of NATO. And and by the way, oh, thank you. So now Finland and Sweden are now joining NATO, and that's like, right, uh, <laughs> mission, mission accomplished. accomplished. China yep. uh, in its in its in its wanting to basically appear strong is now driving more countries together. You're seeing Australia, you're seeing <laughs> Japan, mm-hmm. South Korea, uh, the Philippines. Uh, my gosh! I mean, they had the Philippines on a platter, and the uh, was it, Duarte, Duarte, uh, the the president there, and he was just just was looking yep. for to tweak the U.S.'s noses, and was going to give the Chinese whatever they wanted, and they the Chinese still managed to 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 blow an opportunity there. And Vietnam, um, I, this is going to sound strange, but I think <laughs> I've always thought that history would look at the Vietnam War the same way we look at the Hundred Years War in Europe. You know, um, if you. If you look at the Hundred Years' War in Europe, you know, individually, you'd say, well, these guys lost, these guys won, then these guys won, won, and these guys lost. Uh, But ultimately, what came out of it was the modern German state and a number of other things. So you could say to yourself that, Mm -hmm. you know, this team won and this team sort of like, you know, kind of lost ultimately. With the Vietnam War, if the West, if the United States ends up uh, making a relationship with Vietnam with trade and security, ultimately because of fears of of of, uh, of China, then future generations may actually say, "Well, you know, the Vietnam War was actually an eighty-year war, and ultimately the United States or the West was, you know, more was got it got what it wanted in the end, you know, which was you know
0: interesting.
1: Don't quote me on that. Well, yeah, don't, well, quote don't. me on it if I'm right, <laughs> and, but if I'm <laughs> But I mean, okay. it's it, it might be. It's and believe me, I mean, I grew up in a family that had people who served in the Vietnam War, and it's still kind of a little salty. But I think you know you have to look at this. At, I you have to kind well, of look at yeah. it as the long term. You know where these things are kind of going.
0: I think that's very interesting perspective, um, and I can I can certainly see how if you just change your kind of unit of analysis on Vietnam, it could look it does already look very different than you know when we when we tried to withdraw I mean this is they're friendly they are there's communication it seems very collegial which is it's that I've never really thought about it that way I'm kind of just rolling around with it in my head but um, I do think that that's really interesting so we will keep talking about China. It's unavoidable, but let's do a quick little, um, you know, island hopping. Let's head over to Japan and South Korea, because I think there are other players that um, are going to be highly relevant in the global stage, certainly. But I think, you know, as we we make our way around the globe, there is one area in particular that I think um, we also need to really think about Japan's role, uh, which is the Arctic. But first, let's stop in Japan and South Korea. Oh,
1: absolutely! Right here with South Korea, uh, you may or may not have noticed, but the South Koreans have been uh, very successful recently in uh, in marketing and selling a lot of their military hardware. And one of the countries that has decided to mm-hmm. buy a lot of their hardware has been Poland. Uh, and Poland, if you look at the the power center, we're going to talk later about Europe and talk about power centers, but. I think it was an extremely astute and smart thing to do because they're getting this really uh, what they're going to do is they're going to uh, build this stuff in Poland itself. But uh, South Korea makes, I mean, some of the best hardware and they're also very pragmatic. I mean, they've put they've put together some of uh, they sold. uh, One of the the platforms they sold to the the Poles was a uh, a 155 self-propelled howitzer. Um, The chassis is South Korean. The turret is a, a German-designed uh, turret, and the gun itself is a British 155. So you get the best of all worlds type of thing. Their main battle tanks are one of the best in the world. I'm sorry if you're an M1 or if you're a, a clerk or uh, you're a T-72 kind of person, but that's just if you look at the numbers. Um, but that's very effective. South Korea has done a really great job. Uh, the other side, you're seeing that Japan has... They they announced I think a rearming program which for Japan is impressive but in reality I mean it's, all it is is just getting into mm-hmm. like 2.5 percent of their GDP over five years give or take a percentage but at least
0: over five years that's that's not necessarily small potatoes though no
1: not necessarily at all I think that I'm <laughs> the, the thing that's impressive is that the Ch- uh, the Japanese have announced I think earlier this year that they were building two large ships roughly I think they're like a battle cruiser size in tonnage. And if I asked you how many ships equivalent do the United States have, of that type of thing, I'd say zero. So it's very impressive that what they're doing. Uh, they're st- they're st- wow. still operating under Article Nine, and I've been saying for a long time. I made a bet a long time ago with some Japanese friends, and unfortunately, I think I lost because I think I said Article Nine would be subverted in ten years, and it's been over ten years. So uh, Kato-san, I owe you. Uh, I owe you ten thousand yen, but <laughs> um, and you can reach me on this. You can reach me after this podcast if you want your money, but uh, but it's. Absolutely, but it is true that I mean the Japanese though are I think they are starting to Uh, it it has been since the end of the second world war by certain factions within japan the idea to eventually supplant article 9 and allow japan to be quote unquote a normal country again, but the memories of the war Um, and plus also I mean the economics too it's been very easy to allow the united states to handle a lot of the defense burden But now that Japan, I think, is starting to see that it's going to have to carry a lot more in order to be effective against China, and it sees it as being a a very viable threat. And as you've seen recently, Japan and South Korea have been mending fences Um, in the past. uh, I think we used to say we've said this about a lot of different countries, but I mean, Japan and China never lost an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Right. Uh, But in this case, they're now sort of getting serious about things and saying, hey, we've got to really be we've got to be together and united on this, you know. As Ben Franklin said, you know, we uh, either we hang separately, or we all we either hang together, or we all hang separately. So, uh, and
0: yes, yeah.
1: Um, and if Russia does collapse, or if Russia begins to collapse, who's going to fill that gap? And China, you don't want China just coming up all the way through Siberia, over to the Far East, and up, you know, Sakhalin, and and the the um, uh, you know down to the Kurils and surrounding everybody. So. Obviously, they're going to have to go in and and and, and, and fill those uh, that that vacuum. So,
0: absolutely, and I think that sort of that takes us towards the Arctic. And again, we're back to this similar theme of resources. Um, there is a treasure trove in the Arctic that I don't think people necessarily think of off the top of their head, but with russia weakening and china sort of i don't know if it's a straw man or if it's an actual threat but there's quite a bit of sort of virtual real estate to be had as far as resources go in the arctic
1: i mean the russians have invested a lot of manpower and equipment still to go up into the arctic regions because right now it's one of the few Open bodies of water that they have left, uh, you know, on the Far East, they have to, they have to contend with uh, South Korea and Japan and the United States. Um, the Black Sea, not, uh, not an open body of water. Uh, the Baltic now has become NATO's lake uh, <laughs> from, from start to finish. Um, so that leaves up north in Murmansk. And the Russians uh, look at that as an advantage, but also a disadvantage, because you have this tremendous undefended north that they have to uh, put things up there. And this is these are men and equipment mm-hmm. that they need to defend, you know, need to fight in Ukraine. But they're willing to put uh, forces there. The Russians still have about thirty to forty thousand troops uh, in the north, what they call the Northern Territories, which are the islands that received off Japan. Um, I think there's only like a forty-two kilometer gap at their closest. Uh, but the Russians, because the Russians are afraid that the Japanese are going to take, you know, these islands back, because there's no peace treaty. There's still just mm-hmm. an armistice, and it, it it has fit. It fit Russia, the Soviets, and the Russians. Uh, it, it fit their advantages not to sign one, to constantly just dangle that carrot in front of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. But now with a weakened Russia, you've got that. If you have a weakened Russia, who and if someone moves into, you know, into uh, Siberia, that China has aspirations to being an Arctic, uh, an Arctic power, even though it doesn't have anything that has to do with the Arctic. They say, but we have. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Chinese have said, though, that, you know, we are, we're not we don't border the Arctic, but we have interest in the Arctic. And I think a lot of that is coming through because mm-hmm. of the mythical Northwest Passage that's opening up in the summer months. Um, when I was a kid, you know, we they always talked about the Northwest Passage as being, you know, kind of a folly. No matter where you stand on the idea of, of climate change is the idea is that the climate does change, the climate has always changed. And we for whatever reason it is, whatever whatever it is that you believe in, the climate is changing and we are seeing that the Arctic is starting to open up in summer months and it's opening up the ability for sea lanes. And that's important, not just the resources, but just the ability to move goods and services between say Europe and, and Asia that would, that would cut down on tremendous travel time. Uh, and going by sea, Mm-hmm. Uh, sea, shipping things by sea is the most efficient way of doing anything I mean, whether it's by rivers or by oceans um, I think you and I, we talked about this I said World War III is going to be because of water It's either water as a resource uh, You know, uh, For example, to go back to China uh, Because the, the current unpleasantness between India and in China right now Up in the Kashmir, up in, the, in, in, in Pakistan with the, the Himalayas uh, because that's the headwaters of where most of the water for India and China comes from. Um, and they're going to go to war mm-hmm. more because of whoever controls the glacier system up there there um, is going to be the, the, the main reason. Or water as a transportation medium because you rely upon transport of your food and energy is coming primar- prim- primarily through by, by sea. Um, so, you know, look for China, look for Russia, look for the United States. Canada is, of course, a major power, but Canada, remember, uh, oh, my gosh, 10, 12, 14 years ago? I don't know how long ago, but Denmark sees, like, a small piece of, like, uh, a small piece of the Arctic from, yes. Ukraine, I mean, from, uh, from Canada, and they just stuck from around Canada. waiting to, yep. wait to see what would happen, it took the Canadians a, a little while to get everything <laughs> up there, so... Uh, that's the other side too. I mean, it's like if you're not there and you can't hold it, it then becomes, you know, possession becomes nine tenths of the law. So countries are going to be looking more at the Arctic and saying, well, can, even though we don't have actually an actual claim to this, if we can get something up there, we can claim it kind of, you know, we can sort of, because there's no real treaty governing the Arctic, not like Antarctica. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um,
0: that almost seems like a, a macro version of um the Erie Canal and why it was so valuable, why there was so much wealth built up in Western New York area, um, you know, before trains came along. Oh, which, absolutely. And kind of ruined everybody's plans. But having that shipping access was incredibly advantageous. And this seems to be sort of having that on a much broader scale. So I think let's take a jog over to India and Pakistan uh, for now. They are sort of the other stakeholders that are so critical in this incredibly tense sort of situation that, that we're currently standing in. I think, you know, what you had said, as far as the kind of world war one kickoff, um, potentially being round three for World War Three. Can you talk a little bit more, obviously, Pakistan, Russia, or not Russia, sorry, India and China um, all have very, very, um, they have vested interest in pretty much everything that's going on right now. Um, So while you might not find India in the Arctic, they're certainly going to be paying attention to what China, Russia, the U.S. or even Canada uh, are doing up there. Oh,
1: absolutely. But I think uh, to go back to demographics, I mean, we could look at there's been recent demographic data that's coming out of China that's showing that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we've known that because of the one child policy that, that there was going to be, you know, there were going to be massive changes to you know china and then we're seeing those types of things now and there's been some debate about you know when those things would or will take place uh some people are arguing now looking at some of the new demographic demographic data coming out saying it's probably already taken place um uh, that's open to debate mm-hmm. right but what's not open to debate is that there is i mean there are demographic shifts and it's more likely than not that India is now the most populous country over China. Uh, so with population, yeah, and that gives you pressures, right? Um, India has controlled pretty much India has you know, the Indian Ocean and, and the Bay of Bengal and other places. Um, it is probably a more effective military power than its neighbor Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is no longer being supported by the West we needed them when we had forces in Afghanistan because we needed to get stuff up through the Khyber Pass and we needed to we need to supply things well we're mm-hmm. not there and, and that's another story about Afghanistan but uh, that's
0: a whole, a whole other, whole other yeah.
1: story right um, oh boy but, I would say <laughs> that, uh, but what you're having right now is is that Pakistan is who supports Pakistan and uh, it's primarily China. So because China is using it as part of its Belt and Road Initiative to try to to shorten its its supply lines and not have to uh, rely so much on uh, longer sea routes to bring in energy and, and other materials from Africa and from the the from the Gulf region in the Middle East. Uh, but unfortunately the Belt and Road up, comes up to the north of Pakistan very close to India in that Kashmir region and that's so you've got the line of control with with Pakistan and you have the line of actual Control with the Chinese And whether you know this or not but the chi- China and Pakistan have fought a couple of wars uh, Excuse me China and Excuse me um, India and Pakistan have fought a couple of wars India mm-hmm. and China Fought a war I think around 1962 uh, And the Chinese have been reminding The Indians that they lost mm-hmm. um, But currently right now there's a stalemate <laughs> And despite all this Rosy talk happy talk of oh, Everything's fine we're discussing things India and China are building things up on that border range at a furious rate um, and if you if you look at mm-hmm. that in the idea is because neither one of them can allow the other one to have an uh, an overwhelming advantage um, and India is concerned because they don't want to be outflanked on two sides by Pakistan and by China China can't allow India to to mm-hmm. take that that region with the water supply um, Pakistan is just happy to be there that someone's paying attention to them but I mean Pakistan's becoming sort of like a, a kind of like a you know Kind of a background almost a dmc kind of a background nuisance in this kind of case uh but it's the western parts that western part of china is you know tibet and and then and the Uyghur regions are a whole bunch of trouble and the chinese idea is that the the way they displace they just go in displace people and bring han chinese in there and displace it and make it china Uh, but it's not that easy out there um so demographics once again are important and that's going to drive economics because mm-hmm. also if India needs to feed people and India needs trade anything that upsets that is going to be, become a, a primary part of, of Chinese natural national interest and some people have talked about World War three coming or I'll call it the global conflict because we don't want to scare people but the coming global the coming global sure. conflict you know we're sleep
0: we can like beep it out <laughs> exactly. right <laughs> Exactly.
1: Like, bad word. All right we can't Boop. we can't use Ww3 but we'll see you know um, but we will say that, it, in my opinion, it is coming. Uh, and in my estimations, it, originally I thought it was over the horizon. Then I thought it was in ten to twelve years, and then I thought, well, eight to ten. Now I'm telling people three to five, only because I think that more there's more and more international pressure being generated on these countries that are seeing their what they think are vital national interests, or in the case of China and Russia, where the power, the, the power elites are being threatened and they tie their security in with national interest. Uh, you know, here in the United States, mm-hmm. if, 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 we, if a particular party loses power, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go to war with you know, somebody. Uh, but... Uh, in those countries, look for them. Well, or maybe. <laughs> <Or> maybe. There, <laughs> there was an interesting, I think ChatGPT did something a couple of days ago where they switched things around and they did like something to say, you know, uh, they said, well, let's switch it around. And let's say Russia, Ukraine, but they said the United States versus Mexico. And we're like, we're in day 387 of our of our four-day special military operation to denazify Mexico or something like that. And I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But, um, Dear. <laughs> but in any case, uh, but what you're going to start seeing is a growing pressure and... I think a spark could be personally, I think the spark for uh, the inadvertent spark would be something along the line of actual control between China and India,
0: because Mm -hmm.
1: you it's just something's going to break off. Maybe, maybe not. Um, And it may not be Taiwan. And
0: it's the wild West too.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. It, It is the wild West out there. You were describing some of the, the circumstances and this is not some well orchestrated, very. You know protocol driven line of defense
1: well there are rules i mean that's the reason why that you always hear you know, <laughs> the rules are you can't bring actual like fire you can't bring sidearms and firearms and heavy weapons up to the border so x amount of kilometers you have to so that's why you see guys with sticks and bricks and bats and, and, mm-hmm. and, right. and guys getting thrown <laughs> off of cliffs i'm not joking it's like the vast majority of casualties are like you know so-and-so got thrown off a cliff this guy got hit with a bat it was like oh my gosh um oh dear well it, yeah it's kind of like what the dmz was with the united states and north korea for a while i mean they usually there would be border incidents and it'd be guys attacking each other with like you know axe handles and stuff like that but um but in this case you know that's the rule and but they're still fighting so i'm like you know if everything was cool we wouldn't be having this and you know. yeah,
0: that is a far cry from what i had imagined in my head you know thinking about somebody getting brained with a brick or something that is very different <laughs> than what i had pictured yeah. um but i think i think it speaks to you know sort of the fact that with all of these moving parts the center will not hold something has to give um and that i think is what we why this is so important to be able to understand all of these different influences um, because of the fact that this is, it's not like we can go on like this forever. Um, Yeah. You know, there are finite resources. There are, you know, situations that a compromise is not conceivable. Um, It's one or the other. And so uh, that is, I think why it's so important to understand the, the sort of connective tissue um, and, you know, why you never think about just two nations going to war, because there's always other stakeholders. Um, so then we're going to take a very long flight from India. Um, let's head down to Australia and New Zealand, because I think we don't necessarily think about Australia and New Zealand having, you know, a, a major stake in in a lot of a lot of the things that are going on however it sounds like they do have quite an interest
1: oh absolutely uh and and the one thing that we haven't really touched upon about this is the the ongoing crisis that's global crisis that's going on it's because there is a change in the there's a change in the global system uh we're not we're changing from a a highly interconnected specialized global uh, trading system, and we're sort of reverting slowly back into blocks, uh, individual countries and blocks that are able to um, you know, supply a lot of their own needs and trade amongst themselves. Um, it's going to take time. It took us a long time to get into the global system. It's going to take us some time to get out of the global systems. And there's various reasons of why this is happening now. Um, but what you're seeing is there's a really good default line between Australia and New Zealand. Australia has just made its mind up, and it's going all in. And you've seen it with AUKUS—you know, the Australian, UK, um, United States you know, security agreement. We're giving Australia nuclear submarines. Yep. Um, that's a big deal, you know. Um,
0: that is a sign of trust. Oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> um, and you've you've heard of Five Eyes, which is the security. You know, it's the it's the English speaking countries yeah. primarily. It's the United States, Canada, UK. Um, Australia and New Zealand, and those five countries share um, intelligence amongst each other in the Five Eyes program. Now, the other side, you've got New Zealand, and New Zealand has always felt kind of like the odd person out. And I think that they've tried to play all sides. They're kind of like India that way, right? They, they like to be affiliated with a certain group. Much like India was affiliated with the Soviet Union because the Soviets really didn't care what the Indians did. There's no way that the the Soviets could really influence anywhere Mm -hmm. down there. So they were like, whatever you think is cool, India, we're with you. And we think that's great. Um, So that's what that's what India wants in in a um, in a in a friend Uh, for New Zealand. New Zealand is a small country. I think it feels very isolated and it always tries to play all sides off. At the same time, I think it's had a certain mistrust of uh, the UK and of, of, of the United States and has felt that it wants to chart its own way and doesn't feel that these countries, right or wrong, doesn't feel that these countries have its best interests in mind. So they've always sort of struck out and they, made, they started making friends with the Soviets. They uh, courted the Japanese when they were an economic superpower. And now they're sort of on the side of China. Now they'll say, you know, we're not. But I just find it kind of, I I kind of kind of, you know, two-faced, you know, to sit there. And if you're talking about human rights and then you're making deals with somebody who's not doing what you necessarily want. Mm -hmm. I personally look at New Zealand with some suspicion. And I've thought, you know, why don't we give that fifth eye to somebody who wants it? You know, why don't we bring the Japanese on board with this? Now, (laughs) it's going to take a lot to get the Japanese up to speed, (laughs) the same level of trust. Because, you know, to be honest with you, five eyes is kind of based upon, it's kind of ethnocentric it's it's historical but mm-hmm. but new zealand my gosh it's just uh, i don't know what they're doing and they they made they took great pains last week i mean after their uh, foreign minister went to china and, and by all accounts got reamed by the chinese foreign minister who just you know told them you know the chinese look at everybody they're an imperial system and they look at everybody as tributary states you're either an enemy or a tributary you know you know you know that's it you know you pay tribute to us mm-hmm. and you know you know where your butt your bread is buttered um, and New Zealand's going to have to make a decision about where it wants to go. It, I, I suspect they're going to hold on as long as possible and try to play it off until it gets, becomes too obvious that they they have to make a decision. But, but Australia definitely hasn't. It's, <laughs> um, they've made a deal with the Japanese. That's a major seismic shift in security. And Australia, I mean, sells a lot of bulk stuff. I mean, the iron ore, coal. Uh, they are a major supplier um, of a lot of big things that. China needs um, so you know we'll see I think um, demographically I think they're kind of in trouble a little bit but they are in better shape industrial because they've been industrialized and in they're trading uh, they're better off than a lot of other countries in that part of Asia uh, that may be finding themselves kind of cut out of the new global order. Um, but we'll see I, I found it interesting. just look how China speaks to countries. Uh, currently, China just talks down to everybody. There's there's nobody except for Russia. But it's like in this case, it's like a weekend at Bernie's. They're just trying to keep Russia propped up um, because they're afraid of what a, Well, a collapse would be. The, the Chinese don't want to be responsible for, you know. Keep right. it going as long as possible. It's
0: easier to have someone half-assing it than to have to do it yourself.
1: Absolutely. But it's going to come to a point where if everything just kind of implodes, China's going to have to do something. But China doesn't care about people. That's the thing. It's just resources. and It's money. Um, no offense to—I'm to, talking about the Chinese government. I'm not saying Chinese people don't care about people. But China as an entity— Doesn't really want to control people And China historically isn't about That either it's just about They go in they sign an agreement you Agree that they are the they have the mandate From heaven they're the middle kingdom and Everything is cool Um, and as Long as you don't break that everything is fine And China will keep that going for hundreds Thousands of years Uh, But in this case Australia Being Australia has kind of told them What they can go do with themselves and they've definitely picked a side Uh, Japan has picked a side South Korea has picked Mm -hmm. a side Um, that would concern me if I was Xi Jinping, you know, I wouldn't want, that's not what I would want. Mm -hmm. I would, I would much rather be like Deng and, you know, his, uh, you know, other people who were using quiet diplomacy and soft power, but that's not the direction that China is going. So the question now comes down to trade and, you know, and how things are moved by sea. Um, and we didn't even touch this, you know, Mm -hmm. with the, with the Russians, you know, moving things in and out of the Black Sea and everything else comes down to insurance and as there's less and less security on the high seas, you're going to start seeing things like insurance costs going up. And in the globalist world, I think that trade was basically being pushed by large, very, very large shipping ships that moved at a very slow speed. Uh, but that was how you know economy of scale. I think the future you're going to have to see smaller ships moving faster <laughs> to get through rougher areas. You're going to see countries. You're going to mm-hmm. see piracy. You're also going to see state piracy. You're going to see small countries. Hey, Indonesia, and you want to cut something? You're going to try to. You're going to try to cut off a piece of this. You're Turkey. You're going to try to you know, cut off parts of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Suez Canal, um, and get your cut, or you know, at least get people to pay tribute to you. Um, it's a fast way to make money. So you know, if you're trading, and you're, you're you're relevant with that. That's going to be important.
0: And I think that that also brings up another point that the sanctions also make things more challenging because, of course, they're still trying to to transport things like like oil, um, but the the technology of trying to track these ships or these vessels. Um, it's, it's an evolving art, I'd say. Um, certainly there was a piece of the New York Times about just how challenging it is to keep track of these. There's all sorts of programs to kind of spoof locations. Um, how hard it is to track ships' identities when they're strategically sold to, to try to sort of change ownership and change history. Um, this is a very dynamic space. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time um, on an episode this season, really looking into shipping, um, as well as insurance and what that can do to, uh, to an industry. It's, it's, if you want to give a little teaser, Michael, it's, fascinating. Who knew insurance could be so interesting? Oh,
1: absolutely. I know some people's eyes are rolling back in their head and they're like, oh gosh, you know, bulk freight and insurance, but it is very, very important. And that's going to be making a lot of differences um, in business. And there are a lot... There's going to be we're going to try to challenge your where you think the world is right now. Um, And if I were to ask you, where do you think you get your energy? Where do you think you get your food? Where do you think that who's making your goods right now? Um, You know, and if you're saying, well, I'm getting my air, we're getting our energy from Saudi Arabia. We're getting our food from someplace else. You know, our goods are all made in China those are changing, Uh, you know, and the energy world, the global energy um, system has changed radically. And you know where energy is coming from. And green energy is important, but oil is still going to be a part of it. And it's going to be a 50-50 thing for now. Uh, I worked for the government doing uh, testing on, you know, lithium batteries and, and power connect systems. And We're still a long way from those types of things. And there's just certain parts of the world that wind and solar are just not consistent enough uh, to be able to provide the energy Mm -hmm. that you need. And we don't have the ability to basically do that. So we're going to have to rely on a mix for a very long time. Um, But moving those types of things, if you're in a country like the United States, which has actually a pretty secure sense of, of, of energy and of food, It's not a problem. But if you are in a country like Egypt where you import most of your food, that's a problem. You may have energy, but you may not have. You may have a closer Mm -hmm. source of energy, but you don't have food. If you're in a country that imports most of your food and energy and you don't have deep pockets, you're going to be in trouble. Japan has deep pockets. Europe has deep pockets. So they can afford, they can take care of some of their needs, but They can afford to basically push themselves to the head of the line and take care of things that they don't necessarily aren't able to take care of uh, internally. Uh, And those would be key parts. And that stuff's going to be coming by shipping. And that's why shipping and insurance are important. Because if you can't insure a ship, nobody's going to want to put their ship in risk and put it into some place like the Black Sea where it could get blown up. And plus also the Black Sea because, I mean, just you can't get through the Dardanelles, you know, (laughs) anything big. Nothing big can get up and through there. So. But we're going to talk about that. It'll be fantastic. It'll be, I, I promise. Yeah, we'll
0: we'll we'll get back to that. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, I do think that one area that you know talk about picking aside Australia has certainly done that um, with business, uh, and I think you know that's sort of the other component of this. There's infrastructure, there's trade, there's also just business, um, and we're seeing Australia basically function as, you know, a European nation or, you know, a a brother or sister to the US um, and becoming a real business hub that is international, that is highly integrated with the West um, in a way that I think has blocked out a, a lot of, you know, the potential that China could have as far as doing business in that market.
1: Well, you still see China trying to move into the Solomons. And, and one of the reasons was to, to act as a, uh, they wanted to get in there because they knew that the sea lines of communication, uh, they could go in there in times of war and threaten. And the other side too, is that if you can surround certain countries, the idea is to put as much pressure or at least appear to put pressure on um, on uh, Australia. Uh, but in the in the meantime, I mean, you've seen the United States re-engaging in the Pacific. You've seen the United States trying to push back on some of these things. And um, China uses its money and influence to corrupt elites in order to gain advantages and to push things into place. And suddenly, you know, one day there's a Chinese port and the, the, the local guano mines are all owned by the, uh, are owned by a Chinese entity. People are aware of how they operate and they're looking at those types of things, which is one reason why I think Australia now mm-hmm. is more alarmed and in, in, in moving in this direction um well, we'll see we'll see uh, it's it's sort of like you know when we looked at mm-hmm. the Ukraine invasion when you if you lose the Swiss then you know you're pretty much uh, you're you're in, you're in a bad place right and in this case if you lose <laughs> if you lose Australia you know you're kind of in a bad place in the Pacific or if you lose the Philippines in in there if New Zealand starts mm-hmm. basically getting a little bit hardline on China then you know China's in trouble because it's like oh my gosh you, you even got the, the New Zealanders angry at you what the heck we're still a long way from that, though. <laughs> I think, but but it's the surrounding countries too. That's
0: definitely definitely. Why don't we hop across the pond and head to the U.S.? Um, I think you know we're seeing quite a few themes emerging here, as far as you know. Certainly population, but we've also got resources, water, power, uh, fertilizer. I, I think that's something that is still relevant in the U.S., um, not to mention a much more dynamic uh, political landscape, too. Oh,
1: absolutely. I, I'll be—and this is, this is a changing idea. I mean, because that's what we've said, right? We, we're going to look at things and see where they change— I'd say
0: we'll change our minds. Yeah, exactly. Yep.
1: You know, we, we have we, we reserve the right to change our minds as things change. But if you're looking right now at what currently is going on in the United States, I would say and we, we have a tendency in the now to say, well, this has never happened in the history of this country. And we've never been so divided. And I'd be like, well, you know, we did fight a civil war. Um
0: I mean, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) that got pretty that got pretty hairy. There's been some times in the United States where the U.S. has gotten, you know, where where the relationship has gotten a little bit more dynamic. Um, It doesn't. And I know a lot of people Mm -hmm. talk right now in terms of like, you know, we we could never see eye to eye on anything like uh, I think the jury's still out on some of that. Um, But I find interesting is, is that I think you and I had talked a while ago about like of the four major power blocks, you know, you've got China, India, Russia and the United States. Which one do you think you know, you know, where the line of succession is going to go? And I was like, well, the only one I could think of is really Modi and, and his party in India. Uh, but as far as who's mm-hmm. who's next in China, who's next in Russia, and who's next in the United States, it's like pff, anyone's guess. Um, Lord only knows. Lord only knows. Yeah, right? yeah. But I think would say one of the things is that the United States has got so many natural advantages of climate, the way that our rivers flow. Uh, you know, people don't really realize how important that is until you look at a country like Russia, you know, where water doesn't go anywhere you want it to go. It's really terrible. You look at Germany, um, the rivers. The reason Germany the way that germany developed is the which way the which river flew in what direction so did you deal with the mediterranean or did you deal with the baltic or did you deal you know uh you know with the north sea we have two actually really good neighbors no matter how you really feel oh by the way today is canada day i think right it's july 1st
0: happy canada day absolutely. yes yes it is Happy
1: canada day
0: um but i mean Mexico we love our canadian neighbors absolutely
1: and, and they sort of love us i think but um Well, we have Canada, we have Mexico. Uh, and I sometimes have asked, I've told my Canadian friends, I said, imagine if Mexico was your southern neighbor, you know, or I've told some of my Mexican friends, imagine Canada was your northern neighbor. How do you think your relationship would be? And they sort of like, you know, let's just keep things the way they are right now. This is kind of working out for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we, as far as as far as a block goes, uh, the changes that have come up. And uh, one of the things that surprises me is that there's been real, no real debate about the changes to NAFTA and the USMCTA, uh, the United States-Mexico-Canada uh, you know, trade agreement. That has had a massive change in, in how things are going on. Um, and the three countries complement each other because we do different stuff. Uh, but uh, despite the cartel activity and the dangers and the instability that's going on in Mexico, which is very real, but the thing is, is that with, well, I mean, demographically, you see Canada is sort of like is is a little bit less dynamic. But the United States and Mexico are, you know, very demographically robust and doing very well, at least for the next 30 or 40 yes. years. Right. So mm-hmm. that's all, you know, very positive for the U.S. The fact that we have uh, control of our, our energy for the first time in, in, in a generation or so, uh, we create. A tremendous amount of wealth in terms of food, and plus we have the reshoring of industry that's coming out of China, and that decoupling. Um, There's no, it's no, um, it's no coincidence that the Chinese made demands after Secretary Blinken visited last week to China that the Chinese said, you know, well, you know, as long as you admit that you were wrong and you take these nasty sanctions off of us, and we you uh you will forgive you and we'll allow you to we'll start to bring you back into our good graces and it's like that's not a position of strength that's um yeah and it's question is does the united states need china more than china needs the united states um Mm -hmm. now if you're if you're in business and you're looking at this and you still think china is vibrant and china's the way forward and we're going to make all our money in china it's already too late um you know it's the, the yeah. games the games move forward and you're you know you probably are gonna be yeah you, know, you bought high and you sold low, right? So you know, we'll see how that goes.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that is one thing that we don't necessarily a lot of our a lot of our assumptions on how things work, you know, that as you said, our oil comes from from you know Saudi and China handles all of our manufacturing and is is a massive trade partner that we rely on these things have shifted dramatically over the past 5 10 years um and you know i think one question that we always talk about is who are the winners and who are the losers and sort of practically by luck of you know our our geographic makeup our demographic uh makeup we are not nearly in as bad a position as I think it frequently feels like we are.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. I think a lot of people, uh, because also I think a lot of the news tends to be very negative um, and people are only seeing, I think, a lot of the instability and, and they're looking at things at too much of a micro level and not too much of a macro level. Um, you know, So people are yeah. just saying, well, companies are laying people off. Oh, heck I was laid off myself you know earlier this year. I'm, I'm reemployed. don't mm-hmm. worry folks. Uh, but those types of things uh, those are sort of normal. I think but those are more, I think reflex. That's more of like a reflexive thing. Uh, but overall, yeah. if you're looking down the road where we're going to be in the next two or three years, the United States has the potential of being in a much better place. you know as yes, we're there's inflation, there's recession, there's all of these pressures that are going on within the. US economically. Mm-hmm. But we'll shake it off a lot faster than a lot of other places. Um, and the fact that we're producing a lot of our own energy, and we had talked about this too, is that the fact that with Russia and Ukraine knocked offline in Belarus, you're seeing, of course, potash and nitrates you know, decreasing. And those uh, fertilizers is a, is a really important you know, part of the global you know, supply chain for mm-hmm. food, right? Um, and you're going to see countries like Africa and Asia that are going to see decreases in, in, in output because they're not going to be able to get the same amount of, you know, so you're putting this much energy in and you're not going to get as much out because you're not going to have as much efficiency. Um and it's going to take time, but the U.S. has an ability to be a nitrate producer if it so wants to, because one of the main things for nitrates is for natural gas, and we have a, a we happen to have an abundance of natural gas. And two places that have an abundance of natural gas mm-hmm. tends to be the Gulf region and the U.S. I'm not exactly sure I want a whole bunch of nitrates being stored in the Middle East, and uh, if you saw what happened in Lebanon, fair. Uh, so I think the U.S. that's a great opportunity, mm-hmm. and I've been I've been talking to people and saying.
0: <laughs> oh. A wedding you'll never forget, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Uh, that was an incredible, if you thought that explosion was, was awesome, wait to see what happens there. But um, but yeah, I mean, you're going to have to start seeing these types of things. Um, the other side, too, is that the United States produces, uh, we produce light sweet crude. And a lot of the stuff that comes from the Middle East and stuff that's coming from Canada is like surface oil or, you know, sand tar. Um, and so our mm-hmm. system has been built uh, I mean, right now our system has been built for the past 50-something years to handle that inputs coming in from those types of places. But, you know, we can mm-hmm. become, you know, a major energy producer. We can, you know, handle the load for a lot of countries if they so want. It, that's just those are just choices. It doesn't mean that things are going to happen that way, but we have the potential. We have the opportunities you know, for energy, for food, um, mm-hmm. and that puts us in a very good position. And our friends to the north and the south also uh, have those Uh, have a lot of potential so that puts us as a block uh, in a very advantageous uh, position plus we're defended by two great oceans and we don't have to you know yeah i I tell people it's like look china is you know, china and russia keep talking about america being a big problem but but we're not their neighbor you know they're near each other's neighbors and india's their neighbor you know it's like you know everybody's in the same neighborhood over there yeah you know
0: absolutely and i think If we could jump on a flight headed south and go down to Brazil, um, one of the things that I've come across is the focus on um, disparity. And in Brazil, this is highly visible that there are haves and have nots. And so the sort of zeitgeist of the Brazilian people is very much focused on money being the door that leads to everything else. So you look at something like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the U.S., and there's, you know, there's cultural implications, there's issues of access, of certainly disparity as well. Uh, You go to Brazil, money is seen as being able to buy you everything you could possibly want for equity and inclusion. Um, And I think one area where that becomes a really interesting kind of... Uh, lens to look at things is with food um and so i think you know especially looking at their new wheat um and their innovations as far as being able to to really not just feed their people um but turn that into something that is profitable on the on the global stage. I think that's going to be a game changer for Brazil as well.
1: It would take a lot of pressure off of you know the loss of Ukraine and Russia um, and a lot of countries that have de- that have uh, depended upon that and for outputs. Uh, yeah, if they are able to get this new wheat strain, which is you know a tropicalized wheat, you know that's resistant to a lot of things that are going on down there. If that's successful, uh, that could be a major game changer. Um, and the fact too the fact that they mm-hmm. also you know provide a lot of their own entry you know their energy through you know Petrobos you know through their um, you know, their oil production yep. um, and they're a fairly large country uh, a lot of diversity you know a lot of cultural diversity down there their oil
0: is uh, nationalized oh, yeah, right yeah,
1: yeah. almost everybody is outside of yeah. the United States right <laughs> that's uh <laughs> Well, you know, we'll we'll talk a moment about that. There's a there's something I wanted to mention about you know energy and what's been happening about how much energy has been knocked off you know offline. Well, actually, we'll talk about it now. Um, if you look at ma- the major energy producers, you know uh, p- of petrochemicals. Um, so we saw Venezuela get knocked offline. Uh, Mexico has been degraded because of internal problems. Um, you've seen. Gosh, Nigeria off and on, it still has, you know, a lot of potential, but it's been having, you know, issues going on between, you know, uh, things in the south and things in the north. Uh, And then you've got Russia being knocked offline. Um, You're seeing Saudi Arabia being degraded, Iran being knocked offline. So that's leaving like the United States, leaving Brazil, Mm -hmm. it's leaving some of places like Azerbaijan and Armenia that are talking about that's what that war is going on right now. But you're seeing that, you know, with energy producers, but those are going through contested areas, you know. So it's a lot of energy has been knocked off line. A lot of energy is being threatened. Uh, and that's and once one of those systems gets knocked off, it's really hard to bring it back on again. It'd be, it wouldn't be just turning on the taps in Russia. It's not turning on the taps in Venezuela. So there's going to be more reliance.
0: And you're talking like years if not decades absolutely yeah
1: it takes a very long time to get these things off um it it also talks about storage capacity the russians have very little storage capacity because it was pump and go right it just just get it out extract Mm -hmm. it that's what the russians do they just extract stuff and then they sell it because they need money um but if you're looking at a country like brazil it has the potential to become uh, a major player you know for some things but there's also a great deal of instability. Uh, I think you saw yesterday. I think Bolsonaro. They're talking mm-hmm. about banning him from being able to run for president for the next six to eight years. So effectively, he mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to run the next election. Doesn't mean that everything's rosy now that Bolsonaro is not in, in power. It just means that you're just it's just opening up, you know, more for other corrupt entities to basically be. Able, I'm not saying Bolsonaro's corrupt, but I'm just saying that well, everyone's corrupt in, in Brazilian <laughs> Show me a show me a Brazilian politician who doesn't have whose party isn't involved in some sort of shenanigans. But that will then I guess, you know, whoever is going to be running for president, that will be showing the direction of where they want to go for development and where they see uh, Mm -hmm. and where Brazil. Brazil is kind of like India. It's looking for a partner who's not going to ask a lot of questions and is going to support them on a lot more things. And um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Brazil. But I think it's it's by far Mm -hmm. the largest country in South America and South America is going to be needing. A lot of friends for energy and for food, um, and depending on how they feel about the United States, you know, There's not like they can't run to the Chinese and the Chinese are going to give them food and energy. Uh, it's not like they can go to the Russians; it's going to be a lot harder to get yeah. food and energy. So that narrows it. So where are they going to go to? You're going to go to the Nigerians? You're going to go to the Mexicans? Going to go to the Americans? Canada? I don't know. Um, but those are you know countries that you're going to have to be pragmatic and have a, a strategy of where you're going to get these things from. Um, and those were the power centers will be. And so if you're looking for future opportunities, you're going to be looking at Brazil. You you're going to be looking at India. You're going to be looking at these other countries. Yeah.
0: I would definitely put both India and Brazil on the, the ones to watch list for sure. Um, I think there's going to be some major movements that will, that will have sort of a trickle down effect that impacts quite a bit, um, so, yeah, they're on they're on my list of of what to watch. Um, I think one area that we haven't really delved into, um, you were talking about Nigeria, but uh, Africa, uh, I think s- sort of our presumption is that, you know, maybe with the exclusion of South Africa, uh, Africa has been on the losing side of things. And
1: even South Africa, unfortunately, Uh, you know, recently you've seen just a lot of, you're seeing a lot of uh, issues about power and uh, electrical power and and, and other things that have been been getting them. Corruption has been a major problem there. But um, yeah, the the biggest hit right now is the food part um, and also fertilizer, which concerns Mm -hmm. me because there's like a lot of countries that were looking to get part of the global system. And that calls for a level of, you need a level of specialization. You know, you had to fill your part in the global system. That's going away. So if you didn't have a resource and some sort of way to be able to transport it out in relationships, it makes it harder. And if you can't, if you're having to put in more effort to feed your people, that also means that you're gonna have less capital to be able to spread along for, uh, you know, expanding your system and educating your people and moving them on to, you know, other things. there, there, there's some hope in Africa. Of course, I mean, there's always places. Nigeria, despite everything else, is Nigeria is interesting. Kenya is interesting. Um, uh, there's some hope up in thinking of that up in North Africa, because I mean, they do have supplies. Uh, is it Morocco or Tunisia? I think it's Morocco. Somebody has access, I think, to um, to phosphates, and that could be like a major player. If they could find a way to tap into those types of things, that could do a good deal to help to alleviate some of the some of the fertilizer problems, but that means a lot of investment and someone's going to be able to go in. And yeah, and that sort of investment is going to have a price tag. It's going to be like, you know, some of this has got to go someplace else, whether that's Europe or you know, China or someplace. Um, but it also, though, means that there's going to be countries that are going to need Africa uh, because Africa does you know, yeah. have certain things that people need. Um, so that's something that Africa could use uh, to, for leveraging for the future. It's not entirely dark, but unfortunately there's still you know high levels of, of 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 conflict and high levels of corruption which hold a lot of countries back mm-hmm. and it makes it harder and harder i think for other countries to make those decisions about going in there unless there's something specific like china's gone into a lot of places mm-hmm. because it has something that they want it has copper it has uh, it has it has phosphates it has this it has that
0: it still feels very needs based um it's not sort of an ongoing relationship that can that can sort of pass down from administration to administration there's that instability that makes it very hard to sort of set up those lasting relationships that could really benefit african nations absolutely
1: I mean, the, the, when we talk about insta- we talk about instability in the United States, and you talk about instability in, say, Sierra Leone. It's like two different types of instability. You know, to us, we're like, my gosh, some Absolutely. some people closed down the I five yesterday, and that was unacceptable. But it's like
0: shenanigans, shenanigans exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, it, Europeans and uh, Europeans and Latin Americans and everybody else look at us and they say, my gosh, you people don't have any idea how to riot. You don't know really what you're doing.
0: Uh, or, I know well they they make it I mean they they're writing on a professional level yes. it's a national pastime Absolutely.
1: Well, yeah, culturally it is a different thing
0: we're amateurs we are, we are ranked yeah. We, yeah we
1: don't really know what we're doing unfortunately um but Africa does have it's funny I mean you look at and we're gonna be talking about Europe in a moment so here's that cooperative crossover but you're gonna be looking at the French and their relationship with their former colonies in in Africa um, Britain has lost those relationships, but people are going to be looking for energy. People are going to be looking for, you know, trade and uh, there's still going to be uh, those types of things in place. Uh, Francophone Africa, uh, English speaking Africa, um, Muslim Africa, Christian Africa, those are delineations. You're going to be starting to see things, of course, upon tribal areas. Um, you know, but we'll see. It, it depends on what people need at the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I do think it's I do think it's really um, interesting. There's sort of two different reputations that that European countries need to navigate. One is, you know, as far as establishing a relationship um, or at least sort of trade agreement. Uh, in Africa, they also really have to worry about the appearance um, and perceptions of the colonizers. Uh, you know, that's something that from an external, not so much in Africa, but externally, there's a lot of criticism um, for appearing like they are, you know, really poaching resources that they are colonizing, that they're they're using um, African nations, that that might not be impactful on like the the direct relationship, but as far as what their citizens would think, as far as what other countries' citizens would think, um, it's a fine reputational line to well,
1: walk. you've seen, I'll put it, go back and I'll say, you've seen the French operating in, uh, in, in their former colonies and, and still there operating. And I don't think here in the United States we see that or really yep. understand that, that the French still see themselves as a, is a major player and they are not afraid to put forces on the ground we we love to make fun of the french and say you know they, they're they can't fight they can't do this that is that is also another uh, thing you have to kind of re-examine the french are very robust in their defense uh, yeah. and they're not afraid to use force in africa for various reasons just to keep things kind of under control chad molly uh, they're they're all in there and they're all up And we don't we don't see it in the the English speaking part of the world here in the United Mm -hmm. States, especially we don't understand that Um, the Chinese are an imperial power. And when they're in Africa, they are acting like an imperial power. They don't really care about the people. They're not going to do.
0: Do they ever not? Uh,
1: maybe. I don't know.
0: Uh, it's- <laughs> like, I can't think of a single example when they're not acting like an imperial power. Oh, no,
1: no, no they, they are. They are an imperial power. Imperialism's not dead. Colonialism, they're, just, they're not interested in colonies. They're just interested in, in power and in resources. So I mean, you've seen yep. you've seen Chinese PMCs that are uh, in Africa, and it's it has a do it has twofold. One is to provide you know reliable security for Chinese interests, and two is to give uh, Chinese national police and Chinese People Liberation Army people uh, some combat experience because they haven't really had any since 1979. So, um, but they are there now. The thing though is is that. I hate to say this, but you're like the devil that, you know, um, you (laughs) if if you're if you're in French, uh, former French, northwest, uh, northwest Africa, you know, the French and you know how they operate. And, you know, you speak French and you see them. And that's it. That's just like the devil, you know, but the Chinese come in and the Chinese are not playing the same game. They pay off your elites. They strip your resources. They don't they if they build a road, it's only because they can get it's helping them to get from A to B.
0: They they need right, a road, a railroad. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know they're taking your port facilities, they're stealing your stuff, they're taking over your national. Uh, there was some great articles a couple of years ago about um, a, an African artist. I can't remember the country he was in. Was it Zimbabwe? Maybe it was somewhere down in uh, further south in Africa. And he was talking about how um, you know Chinese they, they, they were appropriating their uh, their national identity, and he had he had. Uh, Painted some paintings that the Chinese had found objectionable, and so a bunch of Chinese had come to a studio and and seized his artwork, and they said, "You can't do this anymore." And this guy is like, "Where do you think you are? This is in China. You're in my country. You're doing mm-hmm. this You're So the Chinese are becoming like yeah. the, the the old idea of the ugly American. Now it's the ugly, you know, the ugly Chinese in, in certain countries like that. Um, there is sort of also a pushback too that the Chinese have found that you can't print well. The Chinese will print unlimited money and distributed amounts, but they're not getting the same value that they were getting. So this is why you've seen like a curtailment or a cutting back of Belt and Road um, in a lot of different places. So
0: I think we've pretty much um, made it all the way around the world in record time. Um, I didn't know if there was anything else that you wanted to add about Europe since we kind of tread lightly there uh, or the Middle East. Oh, absolutely.
1: Really. I actually was hoping we would talk about Europe real quick um, because we, we kind of got into Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the things is to talk about the shifting of what I believe is the shifting of power centers. Uh, for the longest time, uh, the power centers were between London, Madrid, Berlin and Paris, you know, along that kind of corridor of power. Um, and for us, in, in our lifetimes, and probably our parents' lifetimes, Eastern Europe and Northern Europe have always been secondary players. But if you look at the history of Europe, you would see that Eastern mm. and Northern Europe were the major players. And only in relatively recent times, you know, there's the old joke about British people and Americans. British people, you know, Americans think 100 years is a long time and British people think 100 miles is a long distance. So yes. for us Americans, we're like, well, 100 years, whoa, you're getting way out of time. But if you're looking hundreds of years, you would see that, you know, Sweden, Lithuania, Poland, these were all the major players. With Poland uh, becoming a major anchor of defense, buying all that South, uh, South Korean equipment and being very dedicated and saying, you know, we definitely are looking at, you know, looking east and we're going to you know be prepared to defend ourselves in Europe against the Russians, the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Lith- uh, Estonia and Latvia. Finland, Sweden, um, I would say that those countries are becoming sort of now the more dynamic center, you know, of Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. What we've
1: seen with Germany mm-hmm. in the decline recently and with the Greens being elected. And they've so that pretty much the last election put the Greens in power. Um, and Germany is sort of in a decline demographically and politically and power wise. The protests that you're seeing right now in France, I know those are those are crazy, um, and those have a lot of to do with the history of France and also with a lot of their. Uh, but demographically, France is robust and okay. Industrially, economically, France is okay because France is France, and France doesn't believe in so much giving up its sovereignty. So, but I mean, but keep yes. a lookout for what's going on there. I mean, these are some major things, and there are problems, and these are. The canary in the coal mine because we are the canary group right but this is something to look out for yep. you know and look look for these things to go on through the summer and, and a lot of it also is, it's all being put on the head of macron but but france does need to sort of work it has certain advantages and it's probably healthier than a lot of other countries but it needs to work on certain things socially and needs to reevaluate social contracts and its compacts with its citizens and French need to basically I think the French people themselves need to start having conversations about you know what they expect um, you know economically and socially you know what they want from their society because it may not necessarily be <laughs> it may not necessarily be the best thing for France um, yeah the UK uh, big trouble uh, just they are uh, personally I think the U- I think the United Kingdom should join uh, the USMCTA it should basically divorce itself from Europe and just come on over and become part of the trade block it can provide something valuable. Um, but as long as it just sort of sits on the periphery of Europe and not part of Europe and continues to degrade militarily mm-hmm. and, and uh, politically, it's no and economically, it's nobody's, it's really nobody's friend and it's not doing itself any favors. It's it's a fourth-rate military power now. Sorry to my British friends. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see. But Europe uh, collectively is going to have to start, you know, thinking about it. it we've had a shot in the arm with NATO thank you Russia Um, but it's not going to be the traditional NATO that was dominated by certain countries because either through demographics or through politics uh, they've sort of degraded themselves and it's all shifted east and those are the countries that want to defend themselves Um, and if you're in a country that's still not paying your fair share you're supposed to be spending like 2% of your GDP on defense and you're not even like you're like 0.3 you're like meh then you're not really, it's not a thing to you. But I mean, uh, but Europe collectively, as far as energy, they have deep pockets as far as food and energy go. So they can, and they also have relationships outside of Europe. It's just deciding where they, what direction they want to go. And if France, for example, and Britain decide that they want to look for energy in Africa, they can do that sort of thing if they want to build those types of relationships. Or they can go to the Middle East and North Africa. Middle East is going to be more, uh, you're going to see a lot more, I think, uh, disruption coming in through there for various reasons. Uh, but Iran, uh, until, so, until there's some major changes in, in, in Iran politically, uh, in, which doesn't look like it's going to be happening anytime soon, I think it will happen eventually, you know, because what's happening to the current regime is what happened to the Shah. It just The Shah clawed on for a long, long time, but eventually things just got to a point where they were unable to basically to hold on. And the mullahs will eventually make the same mistakes and they're corrupts and they're doing all these other things. And yep. Like, so, but that's
0: second verse, same as the ex- first, exactly, right?
1: Exactly. But Europe is going to need Turkey. And Europe is going to need the energy that's coming in from the caucuses, it, but it needs it to be reliable. And the first winter, they were very lucky. The second winter is where you start to see where the pains are going to be. Um, and Germany, for example, has demographic problems and they have they had opened themselves up so much to globalism uh, now that they're having all these issues. So it makes the French look really smart, you know, not relying so much on the global system. The French build all their own stuff. They build their own agricultural stuff. They grow their own agriculture. They try to take care of their own energy. They didn't uh, reject nuclear power. The Germans and the Greens, they basically did all those things. And so... Um, that's a lesson to be learned, right? You know, you don't, when times are good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I think that that is a lesson. Um, frequently when I hear people talk about isolationism, it is a bad thing. Um, you know, it's seen as backwards. There is value in, you know, maybe not being entirely is, isolationist. However, um, there's, it it provides a level of stability. And I think, you know, just as the U S has somewhat focused back on itself a bit, um, there is a value there that shouldn't be ignored. And, and likely, you know, the perfect balance is not 100% one way or the other, but France is a great example of focusing on trying to make sure that you yourself are as sustainable as possible. Um, without requiring that external support. Um, that said, it really helps to be in a position like the US the US is like France's to be able to do that because if your natural resources aren't supporting that then that's an even bigger challenge. Absolutely.
1: I agree 100% and I think that that's where the world is sort of going. It doesn't mean that the world is entirely going to become, you know, uh, back to a pre-World War II, you know, kind of imperial system. Uh, but what it does mean, though, is that, you know, the age of unbridled globalism uh, is probably declining uh, to the point where if your company or your or your organization is still talking in terms as, as if it's the 90s or the early 2000s, and you have to reexamine examine you know, where you're going and what you're doing, um, and you have to be realistic that mm-hmm. things are changing. So where are those changes going, and what does that mean? Um so, I mean, I talked to, I had a friend of mine who was tracking reshoring and they were telling me, you know, a number of years ago, it's talking about the reindustrialization back, you know, the return of industrial industry back here. Um, but there's a lot of people who, and because of the USMCTA, you just can't send everything to Mexico anymore, right? So you just have to know now mm-hmm. that maybe there's another country you can do things or maybe things could be built here. But with a coming global conflict, and the thing that I'm seeing that's being recognized more and more, I think, in in, in major capitals, in Washington, in Paris, I um, in Beijing and other places, is that there is, you know, uh, it is to talk about, you know, what is a global conflict going to look like? And are we prepared for those types of things? And if you are reading what's in the papers, People's Daily, or you're reading what's in the USNI, the US Naval Institute, and what they're talking about, there's a great deal of concern. Um, People are kind of gearing themselves up for what's coming in the future. Um, So I don't want to sound alarmist. It's just being forewarned is forearmed. And you would be well prepared to at least entertain the thought that the days of wine and roses may be wrapping up for a while. We may not necessarily have the the age of 20... we're going to look back and we're going to look at 2019 the same way that Europeans looked at, you know, 20, no, uh, 1913, you know, the, the Belle Epoque, you know, mm-hmm. never to be seen again in our lifetimes. It doesn't mean it won't be replaced by other good times, but it just means that what we the expectations that we had of travel, transportation, economics, security... Um, all those things are now they're changing and they're morphing and every year will make that it will increase the speed of what those things are going to be. It's going to be new challenges, but it also means new opportunities. So.
0: Absolutely. Well, we made it. We traveled all around the world. Um, I do want to take a minute to pick your brain about why this matters. So what? Uh, What are the right questions that we should be asking? Um, You know, certainly who are winners, who are losers, but what are the things we need to watch for? What are the canaries in the coal mine? Um, What comes to Um, your mind?
1: I would be looking at uh, where food and energy are going and where, you know, who is producing it and who has the, uh, because the biggest thing is consistency and reliability um, and who has the stability you know, so you might have a country that produces energy like Venezuela and at one time was extremely, you know, a, a major player. I was a member of OPEC. Um, but. Due to geopolitical uh, problems, says now ton, it pretty much is off the map, um, is now seen as a
0: mm-hmm. as
1: a failed state. Um, and so you have to look at other countries and ask yourself, you know, who who is able to fill these gaps you know, where is the energy and food going to come from? Who's going to be able to transport those things? Are those transportation routes going to be safe and reliable? Who's going to guarantee uh, those types of things? One of the things I would look at is say, like with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia no longer has the United States as its, its protector. And it's looking for a new uh, you know, country to come in and give it security guarantees. And as of right now, there's nobody who can step up and do that. China wants the oil. China just doesn't want to be responsible for helping the Saudis fight the Iranians and the Yemenis uh, and doesn't have the capability to do that and put those things in the Gulf. Um, The United States is not concerned about those things anymore because it doesn't have to guarantee its own energy security and has the capability of taking care of its closest friends and allies if it wanted to with energy, if it had to, or if those countries were amenable to that. Uh, So you have to look at the other players and who is going to have to basically, you know, fight for that. Um, right now, it's not going to be the Europeans, not certainly not the Russians. Um, but who's going to go in and basically secure these areas to be able to to make sure that there's a consistent and reliable flow of food and energy going in. Um, if there's no, also, uh, we talked about uh, fertilizers. Um, if there's an opportunity there for fertilizers, so look to see who's going to be supplying those types of things. Um, and if it's in the hands of a country that is unstable, unstable, or is in an unstable area, expect to see you know, um, things that are going to impact those types of things. The other side too is you're looking at the rate of industrialization and who's getting the pieces of the pie. There are going to be winners and losers. So over the next, you know, over the next three to five years, also with inflation, global inflation, and with recession, look to see how that's going to impact uh, countries. And also see a tightening, I think, of supply chains and markets. So you can't be getting your widgets and pieces for your your products from a million different sources. You're going to probably be looking to be narrowing that to a few a few places and distributors or in, in manufacturers who are more reliable. Um, and those countries that were had those countries that didn't have a foot into industrialization, but were kind of on the start line, you got to think that those countries might be losing out. So you have to see, you know, mm-hmm. but also, I mean, you saw what happened, I think, was it with Indonesia with uh, when they they, they they clamped down on palm oil and that sent ripples through a number of different other places because people are relying now on alternatives to sunflower oil that got lost with Ukraine. Um, you're looking for the loss of the wheat that was coming out of Russia. Um, and so you they just went to someplace else. And we were used to that in the global world. You just switch and just go to someplace else and get something else. But that may not be there. Um, so, mm-hmm. and some companies have, you know, some companies have been very, very good about supply chain and finding various things working. But I think they're going to have a lot harder. I think it's, it's going to be a lot more fragile.
0: Going to have to get scrappier. Yeah. yeah.
1: And you're going to have to fight. Yeah. We're something that we've never been used to, but I think our great, great grandparents and their grandparents were very used to was a world where, you know, you had to fight for a lot more things or you had to at least have a plan in place. Um, and in this world, you know, we've been raised with the idea of a global society and we're all one big kumbaya moment and we're all here together. That's not necessarily gonna be here.
0: And you can buy anything on Amazon. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and, there's there's 700 different salad dressings at the grocery store, yes, yeah.
1: Organic food, which is a luxury, you know, but it's, it, people don't realize it costs mm-hmm. a lot more, it's a lot more energy a lot more resources to make organic food. Um, Battery power, it's a lot more energy and a lot more resources to make a battery vehicle than it is to make a conventionally powered vehicle, just as long as you know that. Mm -hmm. And it's also a lot more, it's a lot more pollute. That means a lot more pollution. It means a lot more, you know, a lot more of everything to make these types of things. And so we've been telling people that we have these panaceas that are going to solve all of our problems. There's the, the law of unintended consequences here. And that there, we're going to be creating more problems, you know, by switching to new technologies. It doesn't mean that those. That, it doesn't mean it's not part of the path of progress, but it does mean though that you're going to pay for it down the road, and your grandchildren will be saying, "Well, thanks for this big heap of like, you know, lithium battery parts that I have to deal with." It's worse than nuclear energy, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. just be aware that you know the short-term panacea may be a long-term problem. Be aware that. These, uh, yeah. these answers to questions that we're trying to find may not necessarily be sustainable.
0: Yeah. Michael, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm about 10 times smarter after talking with you.
1: <laughs> thank you for saying that. But uh, you're, you're actually the smartest person in the room.
0: <laughs> we're doomed. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. Um, if you like what we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us five stars on your favorite listening app. If you have something you'd like us to dig into, you can reach us at www.canarygroup.org. Uh, you can also find us on social media at canarygroup.org. All of our opinions are our own. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us today. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking. Absolutely.
1: And we look forward to uh, talking with you again soon.